Galatians chapter 4, I'll be reading from verse 12 through verse 20. Galatians 4, verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Let's pray. Father, your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces to the division, soul and spirit, and bone and marrow. Father, we have your word open before us this morning. And it would seem perhaps a precarious place to be as it evaluates us. But we know that you intend to work all things together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And we pray that you would use this passage of Scripture as you see fit in each one of our lives. Teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you follow a true religion? You might not like the term religion. Could ask it this way Do you follow genuine Christianity? There are a lot of counterfeit Christianities, and so it makes it necessary to ask ourselves, once in a while at least, Do I follow genuine Christianity? There are many that take the name of Jesus, hold up their Bibles, conduct services that really have nothing to do with Christ or with Christianity. Henry Skugel was a 17th century Puritan author, and he wrote a book called The Life of God in the Soul of Man, and it investigates the idea of what is true religion. And he begins his book by identifying for us some aspects of false religion in places where people put their hope that is not true religion or genuine Christianity. Let me read to you with a little bit updated language some of the ways that he speaks of people who see religion. He says, Some place religion in the understanding of the mind in orthodox notions and opinions. And all the account they can give of their religion is that they are of this or the other persuasion and have enjoined themselves to one of those many sects whereunto Christendom is most happily divided. 
Don't you love Puritans? He's saying some people put their true religion into the category of just orthodox belief. They can tell you the creeds. They can recite them by heart. Some might say, well, that's important, isn't it? Say, yes, it is important to know what's true and what's false. But if you place the entire confidence of your hope in the fact that you know what's true and what's false, you're putting your hope in the wrong place. And you don't know true religion. He goes on to identify another category of places where people put their hope. He says, quote, others place it in the outward man, in a constant course of external duties and a model of performances. If they live peaceably with their neighbors, keep a temperate diet, observe the times of worship, frequenting the church or their prayer closet, and sometimes extend their hands to the relief of the poor, they think they have sufficiently met their religious obligations. And some might say, well, isn't that important to go to church, to be kind to the poor? Doesn't James, in fact, say that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world? Of course, he does. That comes in the context of the whole teaching of the Bible about what true religion is. And if you find yourself putting your hope in the external duties that you perform, you'll find that you have not found genuine Christianity. Schuylkill goes on. He says, Others, again, put all religion in the affections, in rapturous hearts, and ecstatic devotion. And all they aim at is to pray with passion, and think of heaven with pleasure, and to be affected with those kind and melting expressions wherewith they speak to their Savior till they persuade themselves they are mightily in love with him, and from that assume a great confidence of their salvation which they consider the chief of Christian graces. Some might say, well, isn't it important to have feelings for Jesus? You know, to love him? Well, of course it is. But if you put yourself, put your hope in yourself whipping up some frenzy of emotion and ecstatic experience as the proof of your genuine Christianity, then you don't have genuine Christianity. For it is not the magnitude of your emotions that proves that you are a Christian or that you have genuine Christianity. Google goes on. But certainly, genuine Christianity is quite another thing. And those who know it will entertain far different thoughts and disdain all those shadows and false imitations of it. They know by experience that true religion is a union of the soul with God, a real participation in the divine nature, the very image of God drawn upon the soul, or in the apostles' phrase, it is Christ formed within us. Genuine religion, genuine Christianity, is the life of God in you. You have to be careful about what that means and what that doesn't mean. And so let's take some time and pick out from this text some elements of true religion or of genuine Christianity. 
In a certain way, our passage from Galatians this morning speaks about what is true religion or what is genuine Christianity. This passage is extremely personal that Paul writes. He's speaking directly to his audience, the Galatian church. But it may not come across on the surface as a discussion of true religion, but I think as we seek to draw out principles from this very personal, endearing portion of the letter, we will find that there are some elements here that we want to draw out about what genuine Christianity is. Of course, we have to have some reason to think that this text would be pointing us to that rather than me just saying it. You shouldn't just go along with me because I say it. You need to see it. So let's look at a couple of verses that might indicate that this is going to help us see what genuine Christianity is. First, verse 12. In verse 12, Paul issues to the Galatians one of the first commands directly towards them in this book. He says, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. We need to understand this. Paul takes this moment to directly address his audience. And the first thing that he says is, become as I am. And as he says that, he gives it in the context of a work that's a polemic against false teachers. Galatians is a a book that is primarily against a false teaching system that teaches salvation by works. And as Paul explains or commands the Galatians, become as I am, he's basically telling them not to go down the path of false teaching and false teachers that holds out salvation by works. He tells them to become as he is, a man who no longer relies on works of the law to justify himself, but is relying on the grace of Jesus Christ. And so he commands them to rely on grace, not on works, on Christ, not on law. That is a statement of what genuine Christianity is, where you put your hope. The second verse that indicates that this text is is about genuine Christianity is in verse 19. Paul says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. This letter of Galatians could be described in some sense as the groanings of a woman in childbirth. You don't want to take that analogy too far. But Paul is at least indicating that he is in anguish over the Galatians until something happens or something is birthed in them. The thing that he is after in all that he's writing, all the theology that he puts down in this wonderful book is directed towards this simple idea that Christ would be formed in the Galatians. For all the theology, all the technical arguments, all the biblical references, the pursuit, the ardent pursuit of Paul is summed up and that he wants to see Christ formed in the Galatians. Christ formed in you. That would be a statement of genuine Christianity, or the goal of get genuine Christianity. And so based on these verses, I think that there is a sense that while this is a very personal part of the book, 
Paul is really pushing the Galatians to steer away from what is false religion and go towards what is true religion or what is genuine Christianity. It is not the keeping of days. It is not the observance of religious ceremonies. It is not the surgical, systematic knowledge of the truth. It is not the whipping up of emotions. It's trusting Christ. It is Christ formed in you. Let's take a moment before I give you kind of four elements of true religion. I want to make sure that we, we don't miss the historical significance of this passage. So let's just take a moment and walk through what Paul is saying to these Galatians. We have to, as good students of the Bible, jump into the world that this was written in. And so we could imagine that there was a time where there were real people who were Galatians who received a real letter from a real man that they knew, that they had seen, that they had met, that they had heard preach the gospel to them. And they open the letter and they read it. This is that letter. And we get to look at it as a sense as outsiders for a moment and think about what they were understanding as this letter was read to them. We can't forget that this is a historical book. It has meaning and purpose for us, but not until we understand what was going on in the original context. So here's the story of the Apostle Paul and the Galatians. In Acts chapter 13, Paul is sent out by the church at Antioch to go on a missionary journey. He goes with a man named Barnabas, and they take along another man named John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark. They set out to preach the Gospel to regions that have never heard of Jesus Christ. And as they go through the world, they reach uh, Asia Minor, what we know as modern-day Turkey. And when they get there, John Mark turns back and heads for home, but Paul and Barnabas go on. And they go on into Galatia, and they go to preach the gospel there. You can read about that in Acts 13 14. And Paul indicates that as he came into this region of Galatia, there was a bodily ailment that afflicted him. He got sick. And that's why he ended up in that area in the first place. We don't know the details of it. You could imagine perhaps he got sick in the lowlands as he came to the coastal cities and he needed to find some higher elevation, which is where the Galatians were. And so he crosses some mountains, gets up into a high area. But Paul is sick as he comes to these people. He's so sick, as a matter of fact, that he says that his condition, verse 14, was a trial to them. Again, we don't know what the sickness was, but he comes as a man who is not well, who is in fact very weak, frail, and sick in some capacity, and that's why he ends up in that area. And it would have been the temptation of these Galatian churches to just refuse Paul because of what he looked like or how sick he was, but Paul actually says that they received him. They did not scorn him. They didn't despise him, literally spit him out of their mouths. They welcomed him. They welcomed him like he was a messenger of God, an angel. They received him as if he was Jesus Christ himself, not in an idolatrous sense, but recognizing him as a representative of Christ. In the course of Paul being there, he preached the gospel to them, and they believed him. 
They believed the message of the gospel. And the friendship between Paul and this group of people became so intimate that in the course of Paul's illness, the Galatians expressed their love to such a degree that they would have gouged out their eyes and given them to him if that would have made him feel better. That's how close they were. But something changed. He says in verse 16, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Paul eventually left the region of Galatia, and he went back home to Antioch. And in the course of him being away, some other people come in among the Galatians. Paul simply refers to them in this section as they, or them, those guys. And they came into this region teaching a different gospel than Paul. They came to the Galatians, and they made much of the Galatians. They were flatterers. They kind of came up against the Galatians with all the pretty speech that they could, tried to make the Galatians feel good. Paul says, they make much of you. But not for a good purpose, he says. He says, they want to shut you out, meaning that they want to keep them away from Paul, that you may make much of them. So their desire was to have Paul out and have all these Galatians come and talk about how great these teachers are. They're really in it for their own backs being scratched. Paul is in anguish now over the Galatians because they're following a teaching that elevates works over Christ, law-keeping over grace. And so now he says that he's in anguish of childbirth. Even though he's apart from them, he still loves these dear people and wants to see Christ formed in them. And he says in verse 20, I wish I could be present with you now, for I am perplexed about you. And if he could, he would change his tone. The book of Galatians has some severe language in it. He says, who has bewitched you? He calls them foolish Galatians. And he wishes that he could get with them, look at them eye to eye and speak to them in a different way, seeing that they would reject the false teaching and come back to the true gospel and Paul would speak in a different tone to them. So that's this background in which Paul is writing. He loved the people that he wrote to. And the fundamental thing that he is disgusted by is that they are leaving the true gospel for a false gospel. And so I think we see in this then some instruction for us about what is true and what's false. So having laid all that down, let me give you four different elements of true religion or genuine Christianity. First, genuine Christianity forsakes all hope but Christ. Genuine Christianity forsakes all hope but Christ. Among the many reasons that the Apostle Paul was chosen to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, one of them has to be, he used to be the world's greatest law keeper. He called himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, 
He kept the law better than anyone else. He probably would have been more fastidious than Peter as far as what he ate, who he ate with, what kind of clothes he wore. And so Paul was this man who was known as a law keeper. He put all his hope in that. That was the entirety of his life. If Paul wanted to be known for anything, it would have been that he was known as a law keeper. But now he says in verse 12, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. For Paul, the Jew, the Pharisee, that's a massive statement. For the one who would have disdained anything to do with Gentiles, which is what the Galatians were, people who would have eaten pig's flesh, who would have worshipped false gods, who never would have been close to the temple in Jerusalem, who didn't have the scriptures, Paul says he became as they are. For Paul the Pharisee, that would have been unbelievable, but for Paul the Christian, he glories in that. Something radical has changed in Paul. For Paul to write back up in chapter 3, verse 28, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, shows that something massive has changed in this man's heart. And what has happened, you can see in Philippians 3, is that he counted all his loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus his Lord. And so he forsook hope in anything except for Christ. And so that's why he urges the Galatians to become as he is. Because he became as they are, meaning that he no longer put his hope in the law. He became a man who is entirely devoted to Jesus Christ. That was his whole hope. Paul, in a sense, became like a Gentile. No longer a keeper of the law. He was no longer under the law. He is not, to say, an unrighteous man, but a man who put all of his hope of righteousness in Christ Jesus. So as Paul writes to these people who are considering taking on the yoke of the law, he urges them, become as I am, for I became as you are. So genuine Christianity forsakes all hope in anything but Jesus Christ. When Paul stood before King Agrippa on trial, with really the threat of death before him. He testifies to the work of Christ in his life, and he even tries to persuade King Agrippa to become a Christian. And King Agrippa says to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Paul was so transformed that he was not trying to get people on board with being law keepers and doers of the law. He was trying to get people on board with being followers of Christ Jesus. That's genuine Christianity. When you first come to Christ, when Christ is new in your life and he just kind of dominates everything about your life, you've realized Christ died for your sins. You realize Christ lives for me. 
Christ is in heaven right now interceding for me. You know that Christ put you into fellowship with God the Father. You know that Christ gave you the Holy Spirit. You know that in Christ you have forgiveness and fellowship and a future and hope. And Christ just dominates everything. We live in this room that just radiates the sunlight of Christ. The window is just clean and wide open and the rays of Christ's light come into your life and he just dominates everything. But for some reason, we quickly go back to becoming doers of the law and we even do good things like prayer and we take our box of prayer and we need somewhere to put it in our room and we put it in front of that window and we take our box of church going and we fill that up and we put that on top of the box of prayer and the light of Christ can kind of start to get a little bit dimmer and then we add on the, the box of giving and we put that on top of the box of prayer and the box of fellowship and we fill up all these other boxes and all we're looking at in our room are the things that we do when we've blocked out the light of Christ. Paul forsakes all hope except in Jesus Christ. Remember what it was like to come to Christ in the first place. He's everything. He's everything. That's genuine Christianity. You don't put your hope in your prayers even though you pray. You don't put your hope in going to church even though you go to church. You don't put your hope in your giving even though you give. It's all Christ. He transforms you. True religion forsakes all hope in anything but Christ. It's not a program. It's not a list of rules. It's not a creed. It's not an activity. True religion is hope in Christ a real flesh-and-blood person who died and lives forevermore. That's the first element of genuine Christianity. The second, genuine Christianity is based in truth, not in human power. Genuine Christianity is based in truth, not in human power. It's not based in human persuasion, in cunning, in flattery, or in reason humanly speaking. We see this in the fact of how Paul came to the Galatians. He says in verse 13, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Paul was in a bad condition. His condition was so bad that it may have tempted the Galatians just to reject him once they saw him. He would have looked weak and frail or whatever was going on. He did not look like the epitome of somebody that you wanted to listen to. In that weakness, it proved that the power was not in Paul, but in Christ. It was in the truth of the gospel. Now these agitators that came among the Galatians, the flatterers, there's nothing said about their physical status, but we can imagine that they would have come with the kind of pristine robes and human strength and human eloquence and human reason that is so persuasive to us. We see these kinds of people on TV or on the radio or on podcasts, and we listen to them, and they just have it all together. And you want to follow them because they've got the nice suits 
or the nice cars or the nice ways of putting things. And they've got all of that cunning, humanly speaking. But Paul did not come with that. He came with the power of God, which is the gospel. It's a disgusting perversion of the gospel truth when so-called gospel preachers put more emphasis on themselves than on Christ. Who they hang out with, how they look, how they sound. They rub up against the people that they're trying to win to themselves. And they're not trying to win to Christ. When Paul came, weak as he was, he came doing one thing. He came preaching the gospel. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, 2 through 5, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Genuine Christianity is based in the truth of the gospel not in human power. These flatterers came making much of the Galatians in order to persuade them to their side of things. That's not the way genuine Christianity works. Third, genuine Christianity is not for the social advancement of the gospel messenger. Genuine Christianity is not for the social advancement of the gospel messenger. We certainly need to approve those who are truly preaching the gospel, but true religion or true Christianity does not exist to build a human individual up. The relationship between Paul and the Galatians was sincere. Paul really cared for the Galatians, And the Galatians really cared for Paul. You see that in this passage. They really cared for him. But Paul didn't come to them to try to win converts to himself. But the flatterers did. Look at what he says. Verse 17. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. These flatterers came among the Galatians to try to win followers, like some mother duck who has all these ducklings following them. They wanted people to know we've got converts. We've got people on our side. They look like us. They talk like us. They think like us. It was all fleshly pride. Although Paul sincerely cared for the Galatians, he didn't come to them to try to make them followers of Paul. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 12 through 13, as Paul speaks to a divided church, he says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. 
Is Christ divided? And then Paul says this, was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? There's no tolerance in true religion to make disciples for yourself. Paul disdains that. What an abhorrent thought that people would follow Paul instead of following Christ. The simple question to ask is, who was crucified for you? Who was it? There's only one name on that list. If there's anybody who approaches the status of Christ in your life, you don't have genuine religion. You don't have genuine Christianity. Christ is all. Who else was crucified for you? No one even comes close. There are lots of people who might like to crucify you, but nobody is crucified for you. It's Christ and none others. We can put our hope in the books, the authors of the books that we read, the preachers that we hear. One of my seminary professors would commonly joke with us, did Spurgeon die for you? Have you put your trust in Spurgeon? A lot of guys like Charles Spurgeon, but he's not Christ. Genuine Christianity follows Christ. It is not for the social advancement of the gospel messenger. Fourth, Genuine Christianity is this. Genuine Christianity is Christ formed in you. Again, verse 19. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. This is probably the essence of it all. When we think of religion, we think of the rules, the formulas, the catechisms, the ceremonies, the dress, the look, the places, pilgrimages, people, robes, prayers, money, tithes, sacrifices. All of those things are these elements of religion that we commonly think of. John Stott, in his book, Christian Basics, asks this question. What is the essence of Christianity? He goes on and says, first, Christianity is not primarily a creed. Of course, Christianity has a creed, and Christian belief is very important. But it is possible to assent to all the articles of the Christian faith and not be a Christian. The best proof of that is the devil. Secondly, Christianity is not primarily a code of conduct. Some would say it really doesn't matter what you believe so long as you lead a decent life. But it's possible to live an upright life and not be a Christian, as agnostics can testify. Thirdly, Christianity is not a system of religious worship and a cluster of ceremonies. What then is it? What then is genuine Christianity? Stott goes on to say, it is 
Christ. It is not a system of any kind. It is a person and a personal relationship with that person. Then other things fit into place, our beliefs and behavior, our church membership and church attendance, and our private and public devotions. But Christianity with Christ is a fr- but Christianity without Christ is a frame without a picture, a body without breath. End quote. It's Christ formed in you. That's what Paul is after with this whole book. And I could say that's what God's after with sending Christ to you. It is the intention of God in saving you, not only to save you from sins and from his wrath, not only to adopt you as his sons, but also to put his life into you, to put Christ into you. Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life. Eternal life was brought by, embodied by, Jesus Christ. In the giving of Jesus Christ, you receive not just an exit from condemnation, but also the promise of your existence that possesses not just physical life, but eternal life. This concept is not just found here. Jesus Christ said that he came to give life and to give it abundantly. Jesus Christ calls to his disciples in John 15, 4, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Paul says in Colossians 1, 28, Christ we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.2, regarding the way that he views going to people who don't know Christ, he says, I feel divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. The relationship with Christ is so exclusive that it's one of marriage. Christ in you. What does that mean? It does not mean that you become a savior. It does not mean that you become some second Christ that saves other people. But that Jesus, who is the light of the world, who has life in himself, comes to abide in you and share his life and his light with you in such a way that you experience the kind of life that he lived. It's that he, as the light of the world, lives in you. It is not that you become some person who's under a system. He doesn't come to make you live exclusively by the Ten Commandments. He comes as a person to follow, as a person to trust, as a person to live for. The problem was that the Galatians were abandoning the person of Christ for a system. And Paul's desire was to connect the people to Christ. 
Christ formed in you. Think about the life of Christ for a moment. What his life was like. It is the most amazing life that was ever lived. The life that Jesus lived was unlike any other life. It was so distinct, so unique. Now, you could say it was unique because he fed the 5,000. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He did all of those amazing miracles. He told Peter to go and catch a fish, and that fish had a coin in its mouth. That's amazing. He did all these amazing things, but if you even look beyond the miracles, the life of Christ is amazing because of its distinctive display of love, of humility, of purity, of God-centeredness, even joy in suffering as he endures the cross. The life of Christ is so distinct from any other human life because it was so profoundly God-centered that nothing else, no other human life ever came close to what he lived. It was so full of love for God that overflowed in love for man that he gave his life for sinners. You could say that the life of Jesus was the best life ever lived. It was a life of complete devotion to God, complete love for God, complete and total love for the neighbor. When you try to make religion about following some system, some ceremonies, it makes human life so small. But when you look at Christ as the true life, you see life so big, so large, so full of real divine love that you think that's life. And so when Paul is trying to strip away from us all of these devotions to duties and ceremonies, he's trying to show us the life of Christ so that we would have Christ formed in us so we would live a life as big as his. Because that's life. That's genuine Christianity. And so he's in labor until Christ is formed in the Galatians. And we'd understand that the heart of God is that he desires Christ to be formed in all of us, so that we aren't known for being these rule keepers and ceremonialists, but we are people who have the life of Christ in us, a life so big that it is full of love and devotion to God. A system of religion can't give you that. A law can't give you that. Romans 8.29 explains God's plan of salvation. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
God's intention for the church, for people who are saved by Christ, is not just that you don't have condemnation, not just that you receive this great inheritance of the glorious world that he's going to make. It is that you look like Christ. So then, how much of Christ is in you? How much of Christ is formed in you? You can ask it this way. How much of your life looks like Christ's life? That one will sting a little bit. If you spend any time with honest evaluation before God's word, letting it search your heart, you love your enemies like Christ loved his enemies? Do you love your neighbor like Christ loved his neighbor? Do you love your God like Christ loved his Father in heaven? It's not to replace one system with another, but it's to replace a person with a system. Replace a system with a person. We follow Christ. A good chunk of the rest of the book of Galatians is going to be devoted to life in the Spirit. So don't despair because God has given you not something or some system, but he's given you someone to come and abide in you that will lead you to live a life of Christ formed in you. What is genuine Christianity? If you're to sum it up, I think Galatians chapter 4, verse 19 is a good summary. It is Christ formed in you. Let's pray. Father, to think of the life of Christ and compare it to our lives is to bring us to immediate conviction because our lives often look so little like Christ's life. And so it would seem like so little of Christ is formed in us. Father, I would ask you that you would help to remove anything that we're putting our hope in besides Christ and that you would form Christ in us so that we would look more and more like him, that we'd be renewed in our mind and transformed in our life so that our conduct would match Christ's conduct. Forgive us, Father, for how much we are content with our own systems that we develop in our life. Forgive us, Father, for how much we don't look like Christ. But we thank you, Father, that you began a good work in us and you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So God, please don't let any despair come in. The Lord, fill us with hope. Continue to be patient with us. Continue to form Christ in us. O Lord, let your word do its work and sanctify us in the truth. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.